This is Top Floor, episode 62. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 62. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Sean Folkson is a serial entrepreneur with a few companies under his belt. After graduating from the University at Albany, SUNY, with a marketing degree, Sean started Affiliate Pros, an internet marketing company specializing in affiliate marketing, followed by Specialty Equipment Direct, an online distributor of flooring equipment. He's not a chef or a hospitality person, but Sean's interest in functional foods and his habit of snacking after dinner led him to create Night Food, a consumer packaged goods snack company that is targeting hotel gift shops. Today, Sean and I are going to talk about Atkins, ice cream, and better sleep. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630 or send me an email to susan at topfloorpodcast.com. Today's question was submitted by Tariq. And Tariq says... My startup is for a physical product, not technology. How can I raise money? Or am I even allowed to raise money for something like that? I have a feeling you're going to have a really interesting answer, Sean. What do you think? Well, yes, of course. I mean, you can raise money for anything. And uh, there are a lot more options out there these days than ever. But uh, you know, depending on what the product is and uh, the size of the market and, and the business plan that you have, Friends and family is typically the first place where where people go. There are so many great resources out there, but just put your plan together. Make sure you can you can speak about why you think uh, what you're doing is is going to be valuable to somebody. Because if it's not valuable to the customers, then it's not going to be valuable to an investor. Watch a couple of episodes of Shark Tank, but maybe not too many. <laughs> not too many for sure. Not too many. <laughs> Do you think that it's easier? And I totally understand if you don't want to answer this question. But do you think it's easier or more preferable to do a friends and family round versus going to a bank and taking out a loan? Yes. I mean, so you've got to start with the people that believe in you. You know, a bank, if if you're taking out a loan and you're doing debt, you know, the timing of this is interesting, Susan, because we're doing a capital raise right now through um, uh, equity crowdfunding which um, is reggae plus is what it's called. And, and we can advertise. So we're advertising right now that people can invest in night food, they can buy equity in our company to get to that point. It's, it's a, it's a time consuming and expensive process. But for somebody just starting out, I think, you know, to go to a bank and get a loan, you know, you've got to pledge your assets to get that loan. And uh, you've got to pay it back, even if the business fails. You know, I personally put a lot of my own money into my company. And so I've got a lot of that risk, but my wife didn't want me to bet the house. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we raised money from investors. So I think that, you know, getting a loan might be easy if you need just a little bit, 
but understand that that loan comes with obligations. And, you know, the the bank is not going to care about the fact that your idea could be a multi-billion dollar idea. The bank is going to charge interest. Uh, They don't share in the upside. So they're going to be very focused on protecting their downside. And if they feel like you're not going to be able to pay them back from the business, you're going to be asked to pledge assets. And if the business fails, you're still going to be responsible to pay that back. And if you take equity money, you don't have that problem. You've got other problems, (laughs) which is you're accountable to your investors. And, um, you know, if, if you're not willing to be accountable to your investors, then you probably shouldn't start the business. I do think that your point about banks or lending institutions not sharing in the upside is one that people just miss, even though it's a simple point that they don't care that you have a billion dollar idea. Exactly what you said. They just care that they get their money back. Well, we will stop giving unsolicited financial advice to the universe and move right along before the companies you founded. Like when you were in high school or in college, what was your first job? Well, when I was in 10th grade, I got my first paper route. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, I made more money than I could, you know, spend on on candy and going to the movies. And uh, it was great. I, you know, I would get up early. I'm not necessarily a morning person, but I, <laughs> I had the obligation. So I did it. And once I was up and and just being able to finish so early in the day and know that I was kind of done with work and had accomplished something and earned some money. It, it was just a great way to start the day. I, I really enjoyed doing it, uh, even in the cold or the rain. It was just a great, quiet, very peaceful way to start my day. I know that you've said before that your past business ventures and jobs weren't going to change the world. I read this quote from you. I went years with that dissatisfaction lurking within me before I finally put my thumb on it and made my move. So what happened? What move did you make? Yeah. So uh, look, I think that, um, you know, as I got a little older, I realized that it wasn't just about, you know, making a good living and making money, but it's about um, taking big chances. And, and, uh, you know, I had so many ideas. I mean, I can, uh, I'm sure if I thought back, I could, you know, think of ideas that hadn't crossed my mind in the last 10 or 15 years that other people have either done or, or that I still think people should do. And so I I felt like there were so many big ideas, and yet the the things I was doing on a daily basis to make money were just not that interesting and exciting. I was able to succeed, but it, it wasn't really having an impact. And um, I think a part of me would just rather take big chances and take a big swing and do it my own way rather than just grind out a, a cookie cutter success. No matter how much money you're making, I felt like I needed to be more creative and kind of leave a mark. I really identify with what you're saying. I'd rather make less money and be autonomous than make more money and do everything the way somebody else is telling me how to do it. Absolutely. So let's talk about night food. I know part of the inspiration goes back to the early days of the Atkins diet, which I think got popular in the early 2000s. That's at least when I gave it a whirl. Tell us about that, about how you were inspired. Well, yeah. So I, I discovered um, Atkins in the mid '90s, and um, when I was in college, I could eat and drink whatever I wanted, and I was in the gym all the time. And then as I moved through my mid twenties, I was still eating and drinking the same way, but I was not looking the same way. And um, <laughs> so I started figuring out, okay, you know, what do I need to change about my diet and my health 
you know, regimen. And so I discovered Atkins. Um, and I also uh, discovered a philosophy called body for life. But so the thing about Atkins was, for those of you who don't know what Atkins is, it's basically it's low carb, or now keto, you know, those are kind of the evolutions of Atkins. And, you know, I had my internet marketing company, and I realized that while I was doing Atkins, it was great that I could eat, you know, bacon and and stuff. But, you know, you didn't always have bacon in your pocket when you were running around. Um, now, I guess, you know, beef jerky, you do, right? But um, it's not. But bacon is like the thing that you get on Atkins that makes it worth it. Yeah. So bacon's the real yeah. high se- selling point for that diet. Yes, bacon. Right. So if, 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 if they did a commercial, it would probably start with sizzling bacon and then go from there. <laughs> So I reached out to Dr. Atkins. I was doing consulting work for a client. It was just a couple of blocks. It was in Manhattan, just a couple of blocks from where Atkins was. And I emailed or I sent a letter, I think it was. Wow. It was must have been 96, 1996, 97. Hey, Dr. Atkins, I think what you're doing is great, but it's it's just not convenient to you know have to cook all the time. And it would be great if there were packaged snacks. It's not convenient to fill your pockets with bacon. I'm just pockets trying to picture bacon, right. that. Right. So there's only two choices. One is to create packaged snacks. The other one is to create pocket liners that you can put (laughs) bacon in. Nice, nice. So I never heard back from Dr. Atkins. And I reached out to a friend of mine who had just started a food distribution business. And I tried to convince him, hey, there's this thing called low carb. We should do this. And he said, no, 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 I'm busy with my thing. Um, So this was 96, 97. And by, uh, by 2001, 2002, Low carb was a multi-billion dollar food category. You couldn't go into the supermarket. Right next to the salad dressing was the low carb salad dressing. Right next to the pasta sauce, the low carb pasta sauce. There was bread and just everything. There was a low carb version. Still now, 20 years later, there's like entire aisles with Atkins shakes and all that stuff. Yeah. So I felt like I really missed out. (laughs) <laughs> um, on on a, on an opportunity. Now, who knows? You know how successful we would have been, but I never I never got up to the plate because I felt that as an outsider, I needed somebody to work with. I needed whether it's Dr. Atkins, whether it's my friend Jeff, or somebody. And so, at the same time, or maybe even earlier, I had the idea for nighttime snacking and and sleep friendly nutrition. And I think I had that idea again. It was either simultaneously, or it was maybe a year or two earlier, and. For the same reasons that I didn't do the Atkins thing or the low carb thing by myself, I I never ventured into this nighttime snacking business uh, and trying to launch a product. You know, what do I know? I'm not a food guy. I'm just an internet marketing guy. And every year or two throughout the 2000s, after low carb became this billion dollar thing, I would read an article about how sleep, you know, poor sleep was becoming an epidemic or, you know, how what you eat can impact your sleep. And I knew nighttime snacking was a problem for me. I knew it was a problem for other people. I didn't have any industry statistics. Like now I'm an encyclopedia of statistics <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to share a lot of statistics with you guys that can make your head spin. But I didn't know it at the time. I just kind of sensed that it was a problem. And every couple of years, the idea would pop up over a dinner conversation or you know, while I was having a snack at night with my wife or, <laughs> or, or, or by myself in shame. And, um, you know, eventually in 2009, so I had been uh, at this point, I'd been running specialty equipment direct for a couple of years, a company that I founded, we grew to a few million in sales uh, in in just a year or two. But again, it wasn't having any impact. It wasn't, you know, feeding my soul. I wasn't making a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs likes to say. 
And so I divest, I spoke to my wife, we had that conversation and I divested my stake in, in that company that I was running. And we set out to launch this thing where we were solving what we call the nighttime snack problem. So cut to now and you've got ice cream, cookies, and I think soon to be chips. Is that right? Working on chips. Yes. Yep. Okay. So those things that you make at night food, what is it about them that make them better for late night snacking or better for quality of sleep than brands that we're used to like, yeah. I don't know, Oreos or something like that? Sure. So what I found when I was doing the research was that while there were no products out there for the nighttime snack occasion, there was plenty of expert consensus, right? There were uh, articles, there were sleep doctors, there was the Mayo Clinic, there was the, um, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Science or, you know, these different organizations saying, look, if you're going to snack at night, it should have less of this, it should have more of that. And, you know, like everybody knows, caffeine is something that you should typically avoid, you know, anytime, you know, really once you get past late morning or early afternoon, depending on, you know, your body and, and how you metabolize, you know, caffeine has a half-life uh, of about six hours. So you, you don't want to have caffeine too late in the day. And people understand that. But what you eat is going to impact your sleep for better or worse. And what we know now, some of the statistics that we know now that we didn't, is that people naturally crave excess calories at night. It's how we're wired. It's a survival mechanism. In the weeks leading up to hibernation, bears will eat 20,000 calories a day. Holy man. It's a survival mechanism. If they don't put that fuel inside their bodies, they will not make it through the winter. So the, the that's how they're wired. And humans have a similar survival mechanism wired in before we go to bed at night. The problem now for modern consumers, for most of us, is that we have easy access to very calorie-dense foods. And so that's what we naturally crave. That's how we're wired. It, this wasn't a problem thousands of years ago when you had to hunt or or pick everything that you would eat. Right, or all but, you could eat is berries instead of a barrel right. of Snickers bars left over from Halloween. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience today <laughs> or anything. Very but. timely, very timely. <laughs> yeah, so right. So, so, so those cravings served you well when all that you had available was berries or meat or nuts, right? Those cravings actually helped. But now we're craving these things. Willpower is also weaker at night. Uh, we've got access to the Oreos, to the Haagen-Dazs, to the Twizzlers, and um, it's what we crave. And so that's what people are eating. And we know now that over 80% of us snack regularly at night. We know the most popular choices are cookies, chips, candy, and ice cream. We know that people in just America spend over a billion dollars every week on snacks consumed between dinner and bed. What? So over a billion dollars a week. Almost half, think about it, almost half of all snacking takes place between dinner and bed. That's crazy. So it, it's the numbers are staggering. So we know all of these things and we saw the consensus out there was, you know, if you're going to have a snack, it should be, you know, 150 to 200 calories, maybe at the most. Um, it shouldn't be super high glycemic. You know, it should be relatively lower in sugar, higher in fiber, a little bit more protein, but not overwhelming with the protein because uh, you've got digestion uh, that you need to think about, you know, not too many calories, avoiding caffeine, you know, certain vitamins and minerals are good, you know, vitamin B6 is good, 
zinc, calcium, magnesium. So there's this consensus that's out there that that's been out there. And so what what I did is, um, you know, I had a very big vision, right? Uh, and the the vision is is big because the category is big because the problem is big. And so I was able to, with my passion and my vision, really recruit some amazing, amazing people for the team, sleep experts, nutrition experts, people that were involved in the very early days of brands like Five Hour Energy and Chobani. <laughs> Five Hour Energy is sort of the opposite effect of yeah. what you're going yeah, for Yeah, it's going here. full circle, right? So, you know, to answer your question of how, you know, what makes night food snacks different, you know, we know that what you eat at night is going to impact your sleep. And the way we express it to our sleep experts and and the people helping with our formulations at the at the manufacturing facilities is we know people are going to eat ice cream at night. Knowing that people are going to eat ice cream at night, if you're a sleep doctor, what do you want to be in that ice cream? What I do you see. want more of? What do you want less of? And that really got, kind of guides our recipe development and what makes our ice cream more appropriate at night than than traditional ice cream is going to be different than what makes our chips better than traditional chips. It's going to be different than what makes our cookies better than traditional cookies. It's not like we have a magic ingredient that we just <laughs> drop into everything that we make. It's got to be within it's Benadryl. Like, You're just sprinkling Benadryl yeah. and NyQuil yeah. in the recipes. Yeah, you know. Right. So, <laughs> so for example, like our ice cream naturally uh, has, because of the protein that we use, to increase the protein content, it's got a lot more tryptophan than regular ice cream. But there's no practical way to get that tryptophan content into a into a chip. So we look for other things to do. So it's always about within the format, because we're a snack company. This is important. We're a snack company. We're not a sleep company. <laughs> Our goal is to solve that nighttime snacking problem. The way we do that is by providing sleep-friendly snacks but we're not a sleep company. We're not a sleep aid company. Understood. You see the hotel gift shop or snack shop as the gateway through which night food can enter the consumer consciousness, as it were. Why is that? Why did you pick hotels? Although I, I think it's brilliant and I love that you did. And when did you decide to focus there? Well, uh, I'll answer the when first. So we originally launched with nutrition bars. I was a nutrition bar guy. And I remember over 10 years ago, walking around Manhattan, it was freezing. And I had a backpack full of nutrition bars. And I went to uh, the Benjamin Hotel and several other hotels in Manhattan. And I was trying to convince them to use the bars, our night food nutrition bars, as an amenity in the room. The lobby shops of today that, that are common today were not really a thing. So much has evolved in the last 10 years. So back then it was amenity or uh, minibar. Those were the two things that were the conversation. So I had the idea a long time ago. It was very difficult because uh, the people in the hotel, it just didn't seem to click. There was, uh, you know, the people that would handle the amenities were often part of housekeeping um, it just didn't connect. And then we were getting lost in the idea of, are we a sleep aid if it's, if it's being given out inside the room? And so we, we went on and we launched into traditional retail, into supermarkets. And what we found is that, and it was primarily ice cream. We didn't have the cookies at the time and we had stopped making the bars. 
And what we found is that we ended up in somebody else's category. We became just another better for you ice cream. We were living in Halo Top's universe and Halo Top's category of better for you ice cream. And our key benefits of sleep friendly, when somebody's in that store on a Tuesday afternoon buying, you know, $150 worth of groceries for the week, that sleep friendly messaging and positioning doesn't really, you know, nobody wants to believe that the Oreos they're buying on Tuesday afternoon are going to be gone by Wednesday night. Right. But that's what that's what happens. And we eat at night before they're gone, like all after dinner. Yeah. The same day sometimes. So so it didn't really connect with consumers as much. But at the same time, we were working to get into hotels and then COVID hit. And then that kind of, you know, the hotel industry just, you know, understandably kind of um, retreated from a lot of new initiatives and, and was really just focused on making it through, which which makes a lot of sense. So we came out the other side and we got contacted by one of the global hotel hospitality companies. You know, there's there's a couple of the biggest ones. And one of them came to us and said, look, we think what you're doing is really interesting. We're evolving our snack offerings for guests. And we think sleep friendly snacks make a lot of sense. We would like to test night food. So that was kind of our big break. They tested us. We tested well, which we were not surprised by because we, we had previously before COVID, we had been in some hotels and we knew the sales were stronger relatively in hotels than they were in supermarkets for us. Any hotel that sells snacks needs to be selling sleep-friendly snacks. They're in the sleep business. You know, look, we understand people will buy a lot of Twizzlers and Cheetos and Pringles and Klondike bars, and that stuff is fine. But if you're in the hotel business and you're going to be selling that stuff and offering that stuff to your guests, we think you also have an obligation to offer them a sleep-friendly choice. What you eat before bed matters because if if every hotel you go in, if you're going into the Holiday Inn, the Hilton, the Marriott, and you're seeing night food cookies, night food chips, night food ice cream, night food candy, that gives a level of awareness to the brand, but it also creates this category of nighttime snacking because what you eat before bed matters. And from there, with that awareness, with that trial, then we can launch into the supermarkets and, and have that mass retail success as well. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some specific and practical tips to take back either to their businesses or to their personal lives. And you started to talk about categories. So that's a perfect segue. Snacks that are designed specifically to be eaten at night is a new category of food. Tell us about the difference between creating a new product and creating a new category. Boy, I, I'm a category geek. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep this short. And I is it okay if I reference some books that people can turn Absolutely. to? Absolutely. And we'll link them in the show notes. Yeah. So the, the best book, I think, is called um, Play Bigger. It's a book about category design. And they touch on something really interesting you know, uh, people launching brands and products tend to lose sight of it, but they they make the point that local small business people and solo entrepreneurs tend to really understand. So they talk about landscapers and dentists and orthodontists or chiropractors, right? And when you see the sign or you see the truck for the landscaper, you know, what's big is landscaping, right? And then it's, you know, Eddie's landscaping is smaller. So you have to, as a consumer, consumers think in categories. They don't care to talk to Eddie unless they need landscaping. And then they're like, okay, I need a landscaper. What should I choose? I'm going to choose Eddie. I'm going to choose, 
you know, some other landscaper. You know, dentist, when you see the sign outside of their office, it's the same thing, dentist. And then it's the name of the dentist. So, and I, I think, um, and we fell into this trap, you know, when you try to create a brand, you start thinking people care about the brand. But from a consumer's perspective, consumers care about the problem that they want to solve. And so focusing on the problem really means if, if you're addressing a problem that nobody else addresses, it means you're creating a category, right? And so Play Bigger is the book that uh, I think is great for anybody. And, and really, this idea of developing a category for yourself is super powerful. It's got to fit. It's got to be right. And you've got to be committed to it because it's hard. But I think in the end, it'll pay off. I think it's going to pay off for us. And I think it's something that anybody doing anything in the business world needs to at least explore. And if they don't do it, it's because they thought about it and decided it was not appropriate, not because they just missed it. That makes a lot of sense. Home cooks, I think, get told a lot of the time, good home cooks, I should I should preface by saying that, oh, you should bottle that sauce or you should sell your cookies or whatever. What is it like to sell food? What advice would you give someone who's interested in doing that? Not make it in their home house first. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I used to walk the floor of uh, Expo East and, you know, Expo West. And there there would be people there every year. There's going to be people there this year launching a salsa, launching their cookies. Hot sauce. Yeah. Hot sauce. Right. And some of them will succeed against against all odds, but but most won't. And so I never... And we talked about this earlier. If I wasn't going to do something that was going to change the world, I didn't want to do it. So if if, if somebody's out there and they want to have a little home business, um, and I, I'm not, I don't mean that in a in a derogatory way, but but if if you're trying to get rich, in my opinion, you either need a really big and innovative idea, or or don't do it. I mean, the odds of the odds of taking your passion for baking something that you just happen to do really well. You know, whether it's whether it's baking cookies, whether it's making a uh, hot sauce or or pickles and turning that into a big business just because you're good at it. It's really small. And for that, if anybody having that thought, I, I would recommend a book called Ramping Your Brand by Dr. James Richardson. And it's a book that I wish I had when I started. And uh, it's great. And it talks about, you know, how to go about um, building a brand in the consumer goods space. And it's amazing. Interesting. So in addition to distributing night food at hotels and grocery stores and places like that, you have appeared on QVC three times this year. I've obviously, maybe not obviously, I've never done that before, but I've read so many accounts of it that I feel like I have. And I know that it is brutal. Can you share a bit of your experience? What was it like? And am I right in thinking that it's brutally difficult? I don't know about brutal. I think it's 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 a rush. It's very exciting. Now I, I know that I had read a lot about QVC as well. So it's a it's a different world. I guess I'll call it post COVID than pre COVID because you know now you know I, I've never been in studio. My my three appearances were all done by Zoom. And if you if you watch if you turn on QVC right now. You'll see, I think most people are still Zooming. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They just recently opened up the studios. And um, I think uh, at some point in the next few months, it's going to go back to where being in studio is the norm. But it hasn't been that case. Um, it's a rush. I mean, you know, you've got seven or eight minutes. You know, you want to hit on all the all the key talking points. 
you can see I like to I like to talk a little bit. So there was for me a lot of practice. So the first time on we sold out and we did we did well the next two times as well. But it, it came very natural to me the first time, maybe because I was I was quite well prepared. And um I, I just I, I love being in front of, you know, I don't mind the camera. I love being in front of a group. I, I don't mind being the center of attention. Um, I would not describe it as brutal at all. That's interesting. So I share your feelings about loving to talk and be the center of attention. So maybe I should go on QVC. Now we just have to think of a product for me to actually sell. So we have reached the fortune telling portion of our program. Now we are going to predict the future, cast a spell or two, then we'll come back and see if we're right. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the packaged goods, I guess, packaged snacks industry, what would it be? I guess if I could change one thing about the industry, it's what we talked about before. It's about people thinking that they can do it just because they have something that tastes good, You know, just because they make a nice spaghetti sauce. There's a lot more to it than that. And I'm still learning a lot. You know, we've made mistakes, but I, I do see people and I've, I get contacted by people who are struggling themselves. Now, for me, it's worth it. I want to make something very clear. For me, it's worth it because we literally see a multi-billion dollar category at the end of the rainbow for night food. And we believe that the strategy that we're implementing through the hotels is going to put us in position to dominate that category. So the payoff is worth it. I've been at this for 12 years. I don't make a lot of money. I've got a lot of my money in the company. And uh, I just think that people deciding to go in should kind of go in with eyes wide open, maybe even more so than I even had. And I, I don't know that people really understand you know, what's involved and how severe the odds are stacked against them. What's next for you and what's next for night food? Well, night food is just going to keep uh, focus on, you know, we're trying to force that hotel industry to what I view as a tipping point. Right. Somewhere around, you know, two, three, four, five thousand hotels carrying our ice cream, carrying our cookies. At some point, I think the whole industry is going to tip. Consumers are going to start to expect sleep friendly snacks in the hotel lobby. And at that point, there's going to be this whole rush where we're going to be able to introduce a lot of new products very rapidly and get into all of the major chains because they don't want to be left behind. You know, how could you be the hotel? knowing what you eat impacts sleep and knowing that all of the stuff you're selling is bad, how can you be the hotel that says, yeah, we know some of the other big chains are offering sleep-friendly snacks, but we're just going to keep offering the Cheetos. Okay, folks, before we tell Sean goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the very best stories get told. Going down. Sean, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Uh, I don't know. This is a downer. Um, <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> this, this is a downer. So we didn't talk about it yet, but I, I used to be in the rental car business. And um, I was working at Kennedy Airport. I was the manager at Hertz Rent-A-Car at Kennedy Airport in the summer of, I don't know, it was 1997, I think it was, maybe 96. And one night, three guys came in in a uh, Ford Contour, and they drove up and they jumped out of the car and said, we're late, we're late, we're going to miss our flight. Our flight leaves in whatever it was, you know, an hour and a half or 
or whatever. It was an international flight. And I said, all right, we're going to help you out. We got them checked out. We got them their receipt. There was a bus waiting. The terminal they were going to was, was the third stop on the bus route. And I got on the bus and I said, are there any passengers here that need to go to Terminal 1 or Terminal 2? Because we've got gentlemen that are in a rush. I want to take them straight to Terminal 3. Is that okay with everybody? Nobody was going to that terminal. I instructed the bus driver, go straight to Terminal 3, which was TWA Terminal at JFK. The flight that they were late for was Flight 800. So I tried to move heaven and earth to get these guys that uh, were late returning their rental car to get on that plane. And um, I don't know if they made it. Um, I know that the bus driver, for those of you that don't know, Flight 800 crashed upon takeoff and everybody died. So <laughs> I don't know if this is the kind of loading dock uh, story, but um, you know, I, I, I remember consoling the bus driver because the bus driver came back after everybody heard what happened at the airport and he was really upset and he thought he was somehow responsible if anything had happened to those guys. And, you know, I explained to him that in my opinion, we did everything we could to provide great customer service, you know, anything beyond that, there's no blame, there's no fault, there's no responsibility, but you know, that's a lesson that I always carry with me. You know, you, you do what you can and, Things happen. You know, I don't want to say, you know, let the chips fall where they may, because that sounds very dismissive. But, you know, you 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 do the right thing and and hopefully good things happen. And, you know, for all we know, those guys missed the flight. And for all we know, those guys missed the flight and they were really angry with us because it took us nine minutes to get them there instead of seven. And then how did they feel? Hopefully after the you know, maybe they learned a very valuable life lesson. So I think that what we think is good or bad in the moment, you never really know. Um, I don't know if it's pseudo philosophy. There's an old story about this Chinese farmer. And I don't know if you ever heard this one. It's um, a parable where, you know, the, the, the farmer's son breaks his leg and everybody says, oh, that's bad. And then the, then the town goes to war and they're recruiting all the young men for battle, but the son can't go. So they're like, oh, that's good. And you just don't know what's bad or good in the moment. Um, you just do your best. And um, again, not really much, much of a loading dock story. I don't know, but it's the first thing that came to mind. Sean Folkson, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners got some great tips and their stomachs may be growling now. Mine sort of is. And I really appreciate you riding with us up to the top floor. Hey, my pleasure, Susan. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 62. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 